0: Challenging passages indeed. Let us pray that God will help us to understand. Lord, we do recognise the limitations that we have in our own understanding and even more so, things that we do and think. Help us to sit and to hear the challenge, the encouragement, the way forward behind these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue our way through the uh, Sermon on the Mount as part of our readings in the Gospel of Matthew, we come to some passages that are rightly recognised as troubling passages. We need to recognise that the style of writing, or sorry, the style of speaking and presenting that Jesus is using here is an intentionally exaggerated one. There are ways in which uh, Jesus speaks and uh, teaches. Sometimes he uh, tells a joke. Sometimes he reflects on a, something he can see. Other times he tells a parable. And on other occasions, such as this, he speaks in what would be an outrageous way, an exaggerated way, as a way of ensuring that he's getting people's full attention. So we have to ask ourselves as we sit before these passages has Jesus got our attention? Having done so, we need to recognise that he's also not pushing us to take these things in a literal sense, but to go deeper. The literal sense of plucking out eyes and cutting off hands is not what Jesus wants. He wants us to go deeper into that truth. It helps to recognise that there is a wider pattern behind these, uh, these sayings, these teachings of Jesus. And if we try and look at each verse or each little uh, sentence or two individually, we lose the sense of how they connect up with a wider pattern. Just like in a jigsaw piece, you could look at one or two pieces and it may have some interest. It's only when we see them as part of a bigger pattern that we can really appreciate their richness. And so we need to locate these individual sayings or teachings of Jesus against a bigger pattern that we begin to see how they form part of a much bigger picture. There's a couple of areas of background that assist us in that task of recognising where we might locate these pieces of the jigsaw, these pieces of Jesus' teaching, against a wider backdrop. First of all, each of these topics were subject to theological debate in the time of Jesus. These were common talking points amongst the rabbis. and uh, there are a range of different positions that were circulating in the wider community. So Jesus is buying into a whole field of discussions that the original audience would be aware of. It's a bit like when we will be commenting on stories in the, uh, uh, the news cycle today, if I used a word like the voice you would either think about a TV show or you think about a political question. Um, But you would be able to locate what is to come against an understanding of that background. Each of these talking points Jesus raises are like that. There's a background. And the clue behind it is the way in which Jesus introduces them. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Now, when Jesus uses that phrase and he quotes the Old Testament, some part of the Mosaic law, the first case it's one of the Ten Commandments, in some of the others it's other parts of um, the law of Moses. And what he's doing, he's buying into this theological debate, but he's wanting to reframe and saying, You've actually the whole debate is in the wrong direction. The second clue we have to this is that when he says... And some people say, and what he's talking about there is some definitions that come from those theological debates. Now, that's not as familiar to us, though we do know about it from a um, scholarly point of view. The big picture is that there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. We know that because the rabbis counted them. They counted how many positive ones there were and how many negative ones. And their concern was that to ensure we don't break those 613 commandments, for each one of them we have to put a little field of interpretation around it, a field of definition. And if we fit within the field of definition, then we've kept the commandment and if we fall outside the field of definition, we've broken the commandment. A classic example is what you may do on the Sabbath day. You may not do any work, raises the question, what is work? So the rabbi said, okay, we can come up with 39 definitions of what is work. And they had the 39 definitions, and if you move one thing from one part of the house to the other, that is work, you can't do that. But if you do this thing, well, that's not work, that's actually okay. So they had these fence of definitions, and they thought, well, if that provides clarity. If you do this you've broken the law, if you don't do it you haven't broken the law. Jesus says the law is good but you can't put a fence of definition around it. That's actually looking at the actions, not the source of where the the concern comes from. So Jesus says rather than trying to impose a a law code of definition on it you need to recognise the principle that is in play. Now That could be something that lawyers get excited about. It could be something that um, people who have responsibility to develop codes of conduct and things need to work through. I've sat through a lot of committees and synods and uh, general synods and others trying to work through what constitutes abuse. We all know we're against abuse. Abuse is dreadful, but what is abuse? And we come down to, well, is it physical abuse? Is it... uh, what measure it is as a pattern of abuse and it gets quite tricky and you have to work through, it isn't just physical, it's also mental psychological, emotional social, financial there's a whole range of ways in which that can uh, contribute to the impact on someone. So Jesus says let's go deeper than just trying to have a definition of whether you have murdered someone or not so th- the first example that Jesus goes into provides uh, another way. So what I want to step back from is the whole context Jesus has been talking about, about the the word of God as being light that illuminates, and he says that we can't just pick and choose which laws we like and which ones we want to ignore, but rather he has come to fulfil the law. There's a range of ways in which that uh, image can be used. I tend to think it a bit like when you put the the formwork in something, that you can put the formwork in place, but it still needs to be filled up. And Jesus says that the formwork of the Old Testament law provides the shape and some of the boundaries, but we can fill it in a way which is much more flourishing, much more positive. So the first example, Jesus said, You've heard that it said, um, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, one of the Ten Commandments. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And he says again, someone says to a brother or sister, raka is answerable to the court. Raka is a term of abuse. Basically means you're an empty head. And if someone says it to you, you can take it to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus goes deeper. He says, it's not just what you do, but where it is coming from. As we look at that example, um, it's helpful to see that where Jesus goes is not just a theological debate, but a debate that actually has consequences. And unless we recognise that we're not just playing with terms of interpretation, we're terming with people and relationships but it also gives us the key principle that lies behind each of the examples that Jesus goes to and the principle is this as we look at the heart we recognize that it's not just how I'm feeling at a moment it's not just my mood of the moment or I'm feeling cranky or angry or whatever else we've actually got to address that not just the actions that may come as a result one little side note when it comes to how we need to sit and hear these passages that um, there's a, a truth that is part of the story but not the whole story that has come through the post-Reformation traditions. A post-Reformation way of, of hearing the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus sets such a high bar, you know, if the bar is don't murder someone, yeah, I reckon I could hopefully not break that bar, But Jesus says, no, it's even if you feel angry with someone that you say, what's impossible? None of us can keep that bar. Now, the line of interpretation says Jesus is saying you're all sinful, none of you can meet that bar and you need grace. The truth is, yes, we do need God's grace and none of us can meet that bar, but that is not the point of what Jesus is saying here. He's not trying to show us how dreadful we are and make us feel miserable about ourselves. He's wanting us to do better. The whole premise of the Sermon on the Mount is a premise of do better. He concludes it in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's Version, chapter 7. Those who hear these words of mine and do them are like a wise man who builds his house on solid ground. Jesus is saying, let's do better. We can do better. So, Jesus, as he teaches, takes us through these four examples. It's a bit like, you know, some sermons that people say, terrific sermon, but I've got no idea what it means to me. What difference is it going to make on Monday morning? Jesus says, this is some examples of what difference it should make for us. So, the first one is the example about uh, murder and anger. And the point that Jesus goes to is that it's about the relationship underlying it. If our impulse is to lash out and anger or whatever because that's the mood we're in, then other people will be impacted by that. That is the source of where at an extreme level it could be murder, but at a much less extreme it can be terms of abuse or harshness. That comes through, and as Jesus elaborates it, he talks about if uh, you go to the altar, uh, coming in to offer a gift before God, sacrifice before God, and you are not in a right relationship with a brother or sister, if a brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there at the front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. We actually translate that into our communion service. When we have the greeting of peace. It's not just a good day, how are you? Good to see you. Before we come to the table together, brothers and sisters, if things are not right with us, we need to offer that greeting of peace. Peace be with you. The point that Jesus is making it here is that our relationship with God isn't just a one-to-one relationship with God. So God, I've uh, sought to be obedient. It's a one-to-one thing. Thank you for your grace, I'm forgiven. Jesus says, I never see you as an individual. I always see you as part of a wider family, as a wider people. And the, re- the way you relate to one another is a major concern for me. You can't just set it aside. Those relationships matter. And we see it quite profoundly, of course, in the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And Jesus doesn't lead it there. And love your neighbour as yourself. The second is like it. It's the, second, it's the same thing. To love God is to hear the need to love our neighbour. Relationships matter. The second example Jesus gives concerns committing adultery. And here he's speaking to males in particular. You've heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, one of the commandments. But I tell you, Jesus says, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Pretty hard to hear that and not think, well, I've lost that one as well. It is helpful to know that the word lustfully there, which has all sorts of connotations and popular usage and so on, is actually one and the same as the word for coveting. It's not passing thoughts or finding something beautiful or attractive, It's actually coveting someone, in this case a female from a male. It's actually desiring to own and possess for the pleasure it gives us. And that is what Jesus is denouncing. When we think about it again, it's the same principle. It's all about me. How someone else can give me pleasures, can give me delight. I need to own this woman. And I'm sure there's wider applications for all in the same way. Jesus says, no, we could have to get away with this approaching life and viewing people as objects who are there to give us pleasure, to, to meet our whims and our desires. Jesus said, that's not how we should view people. We should view people as people, not as objects, and regard their concerns and to have the eyes of compassion and empathy and asking about what's going on in their life and the fullness of that rather than objectifying someone that we might covet them for ourselves. The third example, again, is one which we tread carefully into, but it is an important example. Jesus says, It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this is not in Moses' law. It's actually in the interpretations that were current at the time. Because this was a big debate amongst the rabbis and the Pharisees. And they were arguing that there is all manner of reasons by which a man may choose to divorce a wife, just to clear them no longer and cast them adrift. And the the debate was, well, if you do that, then what responsibility do you continue to have? And the desire to give a certificate of divorce is a way of actually freeing that woman up to be able to remarry. Jesus says that was never God's intention. So Jesus talks about the ideal here. Though he does recognise in the real world there are exceptions. This is not the only word that we have in the Bible about divorce and nor nor is it the last word. But it does tell us how we should view marriage and the undertakings behind it at a very serious level. You see, the other pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that we don't have available to us is that amongst the debates of the rabbis and the Pharisees about divorce, they came up with a whole rule book of reasons and grounds on which a man may divorce a wife, including in their definitions for a burnt meal. Burnt a meal? Oh, okay, you're gone. I'll find someone else. That is the world Jesus is speaking into. And he says, no. And the clue to it is the use of the language here. It makes her the victim of adultery. Your action and just casting women out are putting women and your wives in a, a, a very f- a vulnerable position. There are no safety nets. There's all sorts of reputation and honour and shame and scandal that's accompanying it. And Jesus says, no, this is not just something you can do at a whim for all these reasons. God's intention is that you honour your marriage commitment. Now, there's a lot more to be said about that and what happens when that covenantal undertaking has been broken. And Paul does say that there are occasions in which it is the right thing to do, never a a joyous thing, but the right thing to do, and that there is a, a breaking of the bonds, of the ties, that can come in those circumstances. So here we just have one part of what's part of a much bigger discussion. The fourth part, the fourth example Jesus says about making oaths and again Jesus is speaking in exaggerated terms. He's not actually saying that you should never take an oath before you go to a court, that you'll tell the truth. He's actually saying you shouldn't need to. If you are someone who's true of your word, if your yes is yes and your no is your no, you don't need to invoke all sorts of other things to guarantee that on this occasion I am telling the truth because on other occasions I'm not. If you're telling the truth all the time, you won't need to make an oath. But again, he's getting back to that desire of the heart, those bigger impulses. If our desire is to have, be people of integrity, not just be seen to do what is people expect, but actually be true to who we are, then these boundaries that try and mitigate the damage we might cause are unnecessary. Behind each of these and the ones that are to come, Jesus is saying there is another way, a better way, and it starts within. As we hear these passages, we do need to search our own impulses and our desires, and we need to step away from that that, uh, innate tendency that we are at the centre of our world. Self-care is good, it is important, but it's not all about me, and we need to recognise that To be in community means we begin to recognize the needs of the world around us. We have available to us in our Christian toolkit, if you like, in the treasures that we have in our gospel traditions, the tools, the the qualities of empathy, of kindness, of compassion, of service, of grace, of Letting go of grievance, of offering forgiveness, of reconciliation. We have all these treasures. The more we put them to use, the more change that will occur to our world, far more so than any military powers or grand strategies or empires. So Jesus says, Hear these words of mine and do them, and you will make a difference. You will be salt to the earth you will be light to the world may god in his grace enable us to do just that amen